Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have my friend Michael Park, and Michael has harvested 51 elk with his bow and arrow, and uh, hopefully here shortly, about another month, uh, be number 52. Michael, how you doing? Pretty good, Jay. How you doing? Good. I want to talk to you today about elk season. Um, I know you've, uh, you know, you're always in the mix somewhere stirring it up. I know you've had uh, some things going on with work and some promotions and what have you and um, been working really hard. So elk hunting probably has taken a little bit of a back burner because of your time, your time frame. But uh, what hunts do you have going on this year? Um, right now, I just have Oregon. Um, I'm actually going to hunt in Oregon, actually get to hunt with my brother a little bit, something I've never done. So that ought to be a kick. And then if, uh, I can get finished up at a decent, you know, date in September, I've got a buddy that's got a unit 10 tag in Arizona and I will, if I've got some vacation time left and some days left, I'm going to go jump on a plane and fly to Flagstaff and go to unit 10, think around with him. Awesome. That's awesome. Chase some big guys around. Yeah, that that'll be fun. You'll love that. Um, you, your buddy seems like a really nice guy. I've talked to him on the phone, and um, seems like a really nice guy. It's a, um, I think a great year to have a ten tag. You know, I think they've got you know a hundred bull tags, which, uh, you know, has, has come down from you know they they had it. You know, I want to say up to a couple hundred. It was getting kind of ridiculous, but uh, should be fun. Uh, now, I've got a couple questions before we get into, and you and I are good friends, so I can kind of peel into some of these questions. Um, you obviously came down in Arizona in 2009 and shot the, you know, that giant bull, and we had an unbelievable hunt there and killed that bull. I think he grows 435 or something like that. Um, yeah. And that was, I think at the time, like your 46th elk with a bow, and now you've got 51 elk um, with your bow and arrow. and. I'll just be honest, I know that when you shot that big bull, um, you know, with social media and everything, you know, just blossoming and what have you, I mean, there was some people that said, oh, I wish I was a rich guy like that. And, and one of the questions I ask, you know, want to ask you and get your opinion on is, like, I know you, you're you're a working class guy, you work hard just like everybody else, and, and um, but, but you're not, you're, you know, you're not some rich guy. And no, what, <laughs> no, I can show you my tax return. <laughs> <laughs> what What do you say to people that instantly see success in someone, and, I, and maybe not specifically you? I'm just use that as an example. Um, I guess people can make excuses for anything, and then if they haven't shot, you know, 46 or 51 elk with a bow, they instantly want to say, "Oh, it's a rich man's deal." My question for you is like. Isn't it all about discipline and decisions and priorities? And can you talk a little bit about, you know, growing up and wanting to elk hunt and just putting yourselves in the elk woods in position to kill, you know, 40, 50 elk with a bow? Yeah, I mean, it's all about priorities in life um, and making a commitment to it and sticking with it. You know, I, I choose to spend my vacations elk hunting. Um I haven't much the last couple of years because of work. I kind of, you know, found something I really enjoyed and focused focused in on it. And um, the elk hunting will come with next year. I'll probably be able to kick it back up really crazy like again. But um, I mean, it's just priorities. Um, there's, you know, I always hear, oh, you can't do this, you can't do this. Well, if you make priorities of it all and um, 
you know, just stick to it. You can go every year. You can hunt in Oregon every year. You can hunt in Idaho every year. You can hunt in Colorado every year. I mean, everything else is kind of a draw. Montana tag isn't that tough to draw. But, I mean, there's places, I, you know, I hear a lot of people, oh, I can't get a permit. Oh, it would be nice to just get this permit and that permit. Yeah, that's great. I'm um, trying to draw all these, you know, permits in great states like Arizona and Utah and Nevada stuff. But that's gotten to where it's just kind of like pie in the sky anymore. You can't really count on it. It's it's The popularity has exploded. And, uh, you know, that's one thing I hear a lot is people, oh, I can't get a permit. I can't get a permit. You can still buy permits in a lot of places. As um, I think even in Idaho, you can still buy two. Um, if there's leftover non-resident tags, you can buy, I think, a second one still. Um, and it's just priorities and going out and getting it done, making a commitment to it and you know, you can go do it and not spend a lot of money. Um, you know, I think the biggest cost of it is tags and licenses and maybe fuel. I mean, I can eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for weeks on end. So, I mean, food's not a big deal. It's just uh, prioritizing your spending money, prioritizing your time, um, and getting after it. For sure. Like, how? What? In in looking back in the years of elk hunting that you've done, I mean. Have you had years where you've harvested, you know, three, four bulls or three, four elk in a year? Or, you know, looking back, what is the the most elk you've killed in one year? Um, I think I've, I'd have to really think about this, but four or five years I've killed three. You know, killing one in Oregon, killing one in Idaho, killing one in Montana, or maybe Oregon and two in Idaho when they started offering that second permit or Oh, I don't know what Oregon, Arizona, Idaho, stuff like that. I mean, it's you know spread all over. But I think I want to say it's five years I've killed three. Gotcha. You mentioned Idaho, and and um, I, I'm curious to ask you, who spent a lot of time in Idaho, among other states. And I remember in the early years when I first met you in the 90s, you know, you were telling me Idaho was pretty good, had lots of elk, and then the wolves came in. What have you, with your own eyes, seen uh, that those wolves have done? And curious, you know, where it's at as far as a recovery, or is it, you know, tell me a little bit about the good old days and tell me what, it, you know, what it's like now and, and kind of compare the two. Um, I mean, the good old days, I mean, it was good. Um, be able to chase lots of nice six points. And, you know, they weren't giant bulls, but, I mean, it was pretty easy to find a, you know, 280 to 310 type of bull to chase around darn near every day. Um, and, you know, that's what we did. We chased bulls around like that. We shot lesser bulls. I think I ended up killing one there one year that was pretty close to, like, 335, which was kind of the top end of the bulls for what we were hunting there. Um, and I haven't been in a few years, but, you know, following fishing games, trends, and their stats, I'd say it's actually coming back. Okay. Um, and this is a big if. If I'm done hunting this year and have some time and my buddy's done in Unit 10, my truck will be headed east to Idaho immediately. Yeah. And, it, you know, you saw it, though, after the wolves had taken their toll. And, I mean, was it a matter of you'd go into a basin where you'd hear, you know, a handful of bulls bugling and you'd show up and there just there wouldn't be any elk sign and, and you wouldn't even hear a bull? Yeah, that that's what it became. It became that. And, you know, it was kind of a double-edged sword there when the change happened. Um, fishing game, the unit I was hunting in, fishing game, doubled the bull permits on the rifle part of it. 
issued a thousand cal permits in the same year in that unit and uh the rifle hunt started october 1 and that year it was kind of like the perfect storm they had the wolves they had a rifle season that started october 1 with 200 permits and they had eight inches of snow on the valley floors mm-hmm. it, it, it ha- i left on september 28th and you could have killed multiple 300 bulls off of main roads just right. driving around the elk, the elk route it was cold it was something I'd never seen in archery season, and I want to say, if I remember the stats right, they maintained their 75% kill on 65% six-point bulls. Wow. Wow. Uh, you talk about having an over-the-counter Oregon tag um, and hunting with your brother, and you said you hadn't hadn't hunted with him. Um Looking at that hunting with either a friend or your brother or a relative like that, you know, do you guys have similar hunting styles or do you think you do? And, and if you don't, like how, how given advice to people out there, like how do you go into a hunt if you know that your hunting styles are different? Um, Boy, that's a tough one. I, you know, I don't know really what his hunting styles are because I've never hunted with him. He's pretty successful at it when he puts his mind to it and has time. So I'm interested to kind of learn from him. You know, I, I've done a lot of elk hunting, but I'm always still trying to learn. You know, the way I look at it, uh, nobody knows more than all of us combined. That's kind of something I, you know, live my motto, my life through that whole, that motto, you know, be it hunting, fishing, life work, whatever. Nobody knows more than all of us combined. So maybe he can teach me something. Maybe I can teach him something and, uh, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Now is he a caller like you or what? I mean, I I would say maybe he's more of a caller than me. Um, you know, I still call a bunch, but in the early season, I, you know, I, I tend to want to hunt opener, more open country so I can use my glass especially if they're not bugling at all, because then you can, you know, you can do some spot and stock, or maybe you can get in tight to them and then call them in. Um, you know, if you know where they're at, it's a little easier to go in and set up on them and cold call and, you know, expect a silent bull to show up, but then just going out in the woods and sitting down on a stump and trying to call one in, you know, cold calling that works. But I mean, if you can glass one up and put him to bed, um, that helps quite a bit. So, Speaking about tactics there, you just mentioned glass them up and put them to bed. Are you saying that, you know, you might not even actually pursue a bull in the morning, say opening morning, you might actually try and figure out, try and glass them up, see what they're doing, and then try and make your play that afternoon? Yeah. I I mean, I've killed more elk from 11 to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and, you know, that's probably been my best time to kill elk. I like to get them to their beds. Um, and then they're just a, not as apt to, to leave, walk away. Um, so is it you know, a function of like, you, you kind of have them, you have them kind of cornered or you have them kind of, you know, pinned down, so to speak, cause you've watched them go into a piece of timber. So you know that they're there. And so what you're saying is you can move in close and make a play on them and you know, they're there. So they're either going to run or they're going to come. Exactly. And if I know they're in that patch of trees, I have a lot more patience to sit there and monkey with them and mess with them if they're not too wound up. They'll usually always come check you out. They want to see the new kid on the block. And, you know, if you mess with them and keep the wind right, um, they'll they'll show up, even, even in the early season when they're not bugling. 
Okay, so let's talk about that. So you've got a you've got a bull or or some elk bedded in some timber. You watched them go in there, and then you slide in with the wind right. What are you going to start with? Like, what's your what is your go-to call or what is your go-to sequence? And and how how do you play that out with that with that elk? Um, if I know they're in a patch of trees and and they're bed and I've got the wind right, I'm going to try and get as close as I think I can to where I think they're they have stopped in that patch of timber and laid up, just trying to stay out of their eyesight. Um, and I'm probably going to start with one single cow call, and I may sit there for five minutes, see if there's a response, see if a cow will respond, see if the bull will just get up out of his bed and walk in. And then maybe a few minutes later, you know, give him a couple more cow calls, see what happens. If nothing happens, a lot of times I like to pick up a stick and start simulating raking on a tree. Um, okay, so at that some, point, you, you're just raking... Um, you're not doing anything real dominant. You're just kind of raking like you're a bull. It's, you know, you've already you've already signaled that hey, there's a cow or two here, and now you're going to just be raking. You're not giving any sort of dominance to that elk. You're just kind of saying hey, now I'm a bull in here with this. You know, uh, we're we're a group of elk that has moved in here close to you, and are you trying to strike their curiosity more than anything? Yeah, I, I think early in the season, that's what you're doing more so. They're, you know, the last part of August, the first few days of September, it's more of a curiosity thing. You know, they want to see who the new guy is on the block. Um, maybe they'll sneak in and check, check you out, you know, every now and then by about the 5th. You know, they'll start to bugle some. And you can get, a, you know, the, a small bugle out of them. Um, they know you're there. Maybe then I'll pick up my bugle and start messing with them. But early, it's usually, you know, just soft. A cow call here, a cow call there, raking a tree, maybe a light bugle. It's not, you know, a, hey, I'm over here and I'm ready to fight everybody in the woods. It's, it's. Uh, let's see, how would I put this? More fly fishing than fishing with bait. <laughs> <laughs> More finesse. A little finesse. I like it. A little finesse. <laughs> so, so I had a podcast with Chris Rowe, and he was talking about his preference when he kind of starts a dialogue you know, after he's kind of going along the same lines as you, you know, start with a little cow call and just see what's shaking. Um, and this is something I've I've actually seen you do in the field, and so I'm just kind of curious what your thought process behind it. He kind of talks about wanting to start an interaction. You know, if a bull bugles, he kind of wants to bugle back always just underneath that bull, meaning a little bit littler or sound a little bit littler. And I know that. You can't sound big or little, but if, in other words, if he kind of just lets out a, just a medium kind of contact bugle, maybe you let out a medium. But his take is you kind of want to always let the bull that you've got bedded think that he's more dominant than you in the early season. Would you agree with that, or do you like to stand right on him? Um, early season, um, I would agree with that. You know, you don't really want to stand on him. I mean... It's just early season is more finesse. I, 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 it comes down to finesse in that early part of the season to me. Um, I think you've seen me hunt them a little bit early where it's finesse, and you've also seen me just you know, start stirring with them later on when they're kind of starting to get wild and you know, stick my finger in there, so to say, and just keep winding them up. Yeah. Uh, in that scenario where you've snuck into that timber, now you've cow called, you know, now you've maybe thrown a bugle in there. 
Describe to the listeners with the wind where you're always expecting that bull to come or those elk to come. Uh, you know, you automatically, I know, I know I've watched you do it. You know pretty much where they're going to come and why is that with the wind? Um, I mean, they're going to try and catch you on the wind every time. Um, I think that's one of their, you know, main advantages they're going to come and try and catch you on the wind i'm going to try if i think he's going to come i may call and rake from a spot and then immediately move slip down 30 or 40 yards exactly you know try and play the angle of the wind a little different cut back across the wind you know if i think they're below me or you know three quarters of the way below me at an angle um you know i'm going to slip uphill because they're going to probably try and get around above me if they can and uh, I'm trying to make sense of all this, but yeah. No, I, I mean, mean it, I, it, so in other words, when you start to rake or when you first hit your call, you're kind of looking for that spot where you think that they're going to, hey, they're going to check my wind every time. So that means they're going to come here. And right. you know, okay, he bugled and he's bugled again. He's coming. You may slide and, and this is where I think a lot of people, they get clammed up and they just get stuck in their spot. And the bull does everything they want him to do, but he comes right on the downwind side and wins them. Where I've right. seen you and Casey, when I've hunted with you guys, like you make you make a call, you make whatever, uh, you know, raking, and you get a commitment. You slide, like you're moving when they're moving. And some people yeah. be like, well, I don't want them to see me, but I've seen you guys slide 30 yards just enough to angle on that wind, and there's your shot. Exactly. I mean, you've got to, you've got to be aggressive, you know, at the same time, maybe you're practicing some finesse. You also have to be aggressive with that finesse, if that makes any sense. I mean, I think too many people get caught up in, well, I'm right here. I've got some cover, you know, I can shoot here. I can shoot there. And you've got to take into account which way the wind's blowing. And a lot of times just moving 15, 20 yards, all of a sudden opens up, you know, another 30 yards, the bull can come without winding you. And, I mean, you can fool their ears, you can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. How does that scenario play out, talking about the wind and talking about that group of elk that you've, you know, you've glassed up and you've moved in on them? If you've got two people and say, say you're the caller and you've got a shooter, you know, say your brother's going to shoot first, would you immediately, before you even engage, would you set him up, uh, you know, on the, on the downwind side? so that you know that they're going to try and slide your position to catch the wind and he's already going to be you know on on the downwind side so that in other words sometimes it, it it's going to make for a very close shot because they're going to walk right to where your brother's at absolutely i'm absolutely going to do something like that when i'm paired up with somebody um we're going to try and drag the bull sideways across them so they have nothing but a broadside shot. I mean, I run into a lot, a lot of times when I'm hunting by myself is you end up with a bull straight on or quartered at you pretty hard. If you can drag it sideways by somebody, by all means do that. Yeah. Um, you know, so, they know exactly where you're at and you can drag them right by somebody they don't know is there. The guy that's shooting is going to get a really good clean shot more than likely. Going into this Oregon season, um, you know, what are you looking at as far as what will you shoot, um, and what are your expectations? You know, someone that's killed 51 elk with their bow and arrow, 
like what standards do you have if any and 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 you know what what's your expectation um since i have a little bit of time to hunt this year um you know just a decent six point would be wonderful whether he's 255 inches or 300 inches you know just starting to look like a bull starting to act like a bull um you know it's oregon it's the land of uh, <laughs> the small bulls i'll shoot him yeah I'm a, I'm a realist, too. I mean, you, you don't go hunting in a lot of this over-the-counter stuff where you can buy tags. I mean, it's not trophy hunting. It's just elk hunting in a good time. Yeah. How, how much interaction, or I guess when does that season start, and how much interaction do you get, say, that first weekend or that first week? Um, I think we, we start, yeah, we start in three weeks. We start the 26th of August um, and go till the 24th of September, that first five or six days in August that it's open. I really don't expect much for interaction. Um, usually about September 1st, 2nd, you know, I start to hear my first bugles of the season. Um, so kind of the first few days it's hunting silent, silent type of elk. It's glassing, trying to stalk them, intercept them. And, um, now are they actually, still callable for you, Michael? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, I think they're curious. The bulls are kind of all off by themselves still. So, they're pretty curious, and I think they're callable. Um, I've started messing around with tree stands on water holes that first part of the season, and I just haven't been in the right place at the right time yet. It seems to be deadly. Those things drink. Um, they drink a lot. So, in other words, if people are out there wondering what, what their early season tactic should be, you're saying that if they haven't already figured out wallows or places where these elk drink you would highly recommend get up in a tree and just sit would you sit all day or what would be what would be your strategy um i'd sit the morning till about 9 30 maybe 10 o'clock and be back in the tree about three and then would you just be back at camp or would you what would what would you do during the middle of the day uh get a nap okay. um maybe shoot my bow a little bit and try and leave them alone in the middle of the day um but once they get to rut and that's my favorite time to hunt them okay so once the once they really get going so say mid-september you actually like hunting them once they've retreated to their beds and they're just cranked up during the day you like to slide in in into their kind of the beds which you know is unlike you, you always read and hear you know don't get in their bedding zones you would disagree with that I totally disagree with that. I, I'd prefer them to get to their beds. Um, you know, a lot of this interaction you have in the morning where it's a big chase and you think, oh, the bull's pushing his cows, the bull's pushing his cows. The bull's lazy. He's just following his cows. That's my thoughts. He's following his cows. He's following along. The cow knows where they're going to bed. And, you know, the bull will usually trail along and bugle the whole time. The satellites, if they've got satellites, will bugle the whole time. But he's just trailing along, following his cow that's going to wherever the whole herd's going to bed down. And, if I can get them into their beds, let them get laid up, let them get comfortable, and get the wind right, um, you're going to usually get a play on them. That's good stuff. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about um, drawing on bulls and shooting bulls. And if you could describe to the listeners as many elk as you've killed, um, is there a perceived place that you know? you might disagree with as far as shot placement you know on, on a broadside elk or would you say high or lower i mean talk to me about exactly if you had the perfect shot where you said you know dead bull where would that be 
um, come right up his leg line, 10 inches um, off the ch- bottom of the chest, right up the back of his leg line. In the crease out. or off yep. the crease? Right in the crease. Right in the crease. Bottom of the 10 ring on a McKenzie target. Okay, and I, and have you seen more elk? Well, let me ask you this. The elk that you've seen die within eyesight, is that where you hit them? Yeah. Okay. Would you rather hit an elk low or high if they're broadside? Uh, low. I, I, well, let me back up. If you were going to miss high or low, would you rather hit them low or high and why? Um, low just for a blood trail. Um, high, you know, they just don't tend to bleed a lot, although there still is a lot of lung up there. If you can pop their both their lungs, they're going to die usually. What's your thought on if you shoot an elk and he wobbles out there 15 or 20 yards and he's still wobbling around and standing, what do you do? He's got two or three more arrows in him or through him. <laughs> I don't stop shooting. I mean, they become General Custer. <laughs> if they'll stand there, I keep shooting. And at some point, if you know, are you shooting at anything you've got? At I mean, or are you picky? I mean, if he's standing butt to you and he's, you know, you drilled him, but he's 25, he's 30 yards away and he's butt to you, are you just sending him home the whole time? Yep. I'm going to shoot him right in the butt. Okay. And we've talked about this before on the podcast. The bull coming straight in, comes charging in, uh, front on shot. Do you like it? Inside of 20 yards, I'm going to do it. And where are you going to aim? Um... Six inches up off the, the brisket, kind of where the main, you know, the long hair kind of transitions into short hair. Mm-hmm. How, how many, how many bulls have you seen shot like that, and how many are just dead on their feet? Um, I think I've seen between myself and other people like eleven. And usually, if when they whirl, you see this big spray of blood coming at them as they whirl around, and you just kind of chalk it up to, well, that one's dead. They tend to not go more than about 50 yards, and, you know, Ray Charles could follow the blood trail. Let's talk about um, your equipment this year. What are you shooting, and is it any different than the elk setup that you used for many years? Yeah, it's a little different. Um, I'm starting to have problems with my shoulders. I just set up a brand-new Elite Option 7, and it's only 61 pounds. (laughs) So... You know, other than that, you know, it's kind of the same arrows, a ACC and, you know, 61 pounds, and it'll be, oh, either a shuttle T or a slick trick broadhead on the end of it. Three blade? Yep, three or four blade, it doesn't matter. Um, I'm not a big fan of two blades just because I've seen some pretty poor blood trails from two blade broadheads. Great penetration, but not good blood trail. Exactly. I mean, they make a slit, you know, they penetrate good, they kill them good but it's a slit versus a hole. Yeah. Is your shoulder issues related to archery or unrelated? Uh, I think archery has something to do with it. When I was young and dumb, I shot a lot of 80, 85-pound bows, and you know, I don't think that's helped at all. I think some of it's from playing baseball all my younger life and swinging a hammer and things like that at work, but uh, it's kind of wore out and sore, so... We cut her down to 61 pounds. I think it will should be able to kill him. 
I mean, I tend not to shoot real far. I think if I take all my elk, I've kind of kept stats on it. And over time, I think my average shot is like 28.3 yards. Wow. Wow. So this year, if you harvest a bull in Oregon, that'll make number 52. Um, How old are you? Uh, I'll be 50 in October. 50 in October. That's pretty amazing. Uh, Do you have any places that you want to hunt elk that you haven't? Yeah, I want to hunt in New Mexico. Um, I just have never drawn a tag in New Mexico yet. I'd like to hunt New Mexico. I'd like to kill a bull in New Mexico. And then I will have killed one in every state in the West outside of California. That's pretty neat. That's pretty neat. Just, just something different, you know. I mean, be able to say, hey, I killed one on all these states. and um, Someday I'll get to New Mexico and knock that one off the list, too. How much of it for you, I, I mean, I know you like fishing for salmon. I know you like duck hunting. I know you like blacktails. I, you know, you, you've got a lot of stuff you like doing. But how much for you is elk hunting the interaction and the calling aspect? and Or how much of it is just, you know, you love you love elk hunting itself? Um, I think a lot of it's just uh, the interaction, the calling a man, the, the, you know, I feel the, the calling a bull in or calling a cow in. I mean, it's, I mean, the purest form of trickery um, that there is, be it calling elk, rattling blacktails in, calling ducks, catching fish on artificial lures or flies, you know, it's just a, a form of trickery and, it's it's always fun to say you've tricked something into your ruse that you have going on. Yeah, and but you're not opposed to calling in a bull silent and whacking them, right? Oh, not at all. He doesn't have to come screaming in. I mean, if I got can sneak up on one and, and uh, kill him, great. If I, you know one of these days I'm going to shoot one on a water hole out of a tree stand, great. Um, you know, I'm I try and be multidimensional and not get locked into one style, one way. Do you ever do you ever see yourself hunting, you know, just specifically hunting, having tags that you hunt bulls, but being pumped because you've got cow tags and you know just whacking cows too? Um, no, I've never had a cow. Well, some of the tags I have had, you could shoot any elk, but um, I try and leave the lady elk in the woods for the other folks to enjoy. <laughs> um, so it's just, as just as, not my thing. I'm not, you know, if I could have a cow tag to go with my bull tag in Oregon, yeah, I'd dump a cow in a heartbeat. They're good, good to eat. Yeah. So in other words, you like hunting bulls, but if you could have a bull and a cow tag, you'd whack them both. Absolutely. Would you? You've caught a lot of cows, and is there anything that you would do different if you specifically had a cow tag across the West and you were trying to focus on cow elk? Would there be any changes in your tactics? No, they wouldn't. You'd be surprised in the early season when you do get in around a herd like that that sometimes the first elk to show up when you're calling, um, cold calling the elk, is a cow. I mean, they're sometimes just as curious as the bulls, so I wouldn't change a thing. When you look back at, you know, 51 elk, what are some of your favorite hunts or favorite stories um, that go along with those hunts? Do you have a couple that just, you know, jump out at you, you know, whether it be whatever, what, you know, something with the hunt that, that make, made them, you know, a couple of them a little more special than the others? Uh, 
I killed a bull in Idaho one year by myself, um, and I think it was about, about 2,000. And I was hunting in a foot of snow. It was cold. I'd been hunting for 10 days by myself. The bugling was really good, but it was just one of those hunts that I could I could have screwed I screwed more elk up than you could imagine. Just the wind got me, this got me, that got me, you know. And I was down to running out of time, and I was mentally beat. And called the bull in and shot over his back by a foot at 30 yards. I don't know how I managed to do that, but um, did that and was able to call him back in and kill him. And, you know, it was kind of a cool deal. It was, you know, like I say, in the snow, one of the few I have pictures of where, you know, I'm in a foot of snow with an elk during archery season. And, um, you know, and he was a nice six point. Um, it was, that was pretty cool. And I'd say another one would be killing that big bull with you because you kind of know, I mean, we could go on for three or four hours trying to tell that whole story in its entirety. Just, it was comedy and we had a great time with it. Yeah. You know, we had lots of things go wrong on that hunt and, you know, we just laughed it off and, kept grinding away yeah don't you think what happened (laughs) don't you think though that i mean when you really look back at all your hunts like and and i'm the same way there's so many things that go wrong before things go right i mean most hunts you know unless you're done the first day uh you just people see the pictures people see the you know the videos they see the things and they think that oh it's just easy but don't you think most of them are a struggle until it happens and then you're like wow that really you know the tide just changed there yeah and and a lot of times you know you're grinding on it you're struggling you're grinding on it you're struggling oh this is terrible this is terrible this is terrible Uh uh-oh i just killed one and it changes that fast so many times that you know you're grinding on it nothing's working nothing's working and then you're over, it's done. You just shot one. He's running off with an arrow shot through his lungs, and it's like, wow, how did that happen? How did it happen so fast? You just, you know, got to keep a good mental outlook and keep grinding away at it. It's not like the movies. <laughs> it's not like the movies. I want to take a quick second here to thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank Go Hunt Insider, and I want to encourage the listeners to check them out. And if you sign up for a Go Hunt Insider membership, Uh, Make sure to use the J. Scott promo code, and if you do that, you're going to get a $50 uh, Go Hunt Gear Shop store credit. And I don't know, Michael, if you've used Go Hunt, but it's a phenomenal resource to be able to research all the western states and be able to look at the draw odds and the harvest statistics. Uh, And they've just recently opened up a gear shop. They're they're trying to get gear that, that, you know, hardcore hunters use and they're trying to make it available uh right through the website and you get that fifty dollar uh you know store credit if you sign up using the j scott promo code and a bunch of people have emailed me over the last couple years uh telling me how much they like that gohunt.com insider and i want to thank them for their sponsorship i want to thank kuyu ultralight hunting Uh, make sure you guys go check out the kuyu mobile showroom uh, they are the mobile showroom right now is going to be in Kansas City, Missouri, then Oklahoma City, Dallas, Houston, Lubbock, Albuquerque, Grand Junction, Colorado, September 21st through the 23rd, Salt Lake, Cedar City, and a, and a bunch more cities after that. You can go on uh, kuyu.com and check out where the mobile showroom is at. At that mobile showroom, you can get uh, a chance to try on and and see exactly what size you are in the boots, the pack, 
um, all the base layers, you know, the pants, every piece of gear that Kuyu makes is on that trailer in every size. Uh, so I want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting for their sponsorship of this podcast. Also, the Outdoorsman's uh, Cody Nelson, whom you know, Michael, uh, 1-800-291-8065 or on Outdoorsman's.com. They are the optics authority. Uh, they also make great backpacks, tripods, and a bunch of other hunting gear. Uh, Cody Nelson and his crew, if you give them a call, use the J. Scott promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount. And then Phonescope.com, use the J. Scott 16 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount there at Phonescope. Um, Michael, talking about hunting gear, things have changed since you last, or since you started. What do you think has been one of the biggest advances um, in either technology or gear or what have you since since the days when you first started elk hunting? Um, man, a little bit of everything. Um, optics. I mean, the, the optics nowadays are phenomenal. Um, the clothing, that's probably where it's changed the most is the clothing. Um, I mean, for years it was, you know, cotton clothes, mili- military camo, things like that. But, I, you know, the clothes have come a long ways. The optics have come a long ways. The bows have come a fair distance. Um, so it's kind of all across the board. I mean, it seems like some of this stuff's changing so fast that I can't even keep up with it. And honestly, you know, the last couple of years, I've kind of had my head wrapped up into work, so I'm, you know, not as up on top of it as I could be at this point. But um, number one would be the clothes, um, followed by optics, followed by the archery equipment to me. Would you consider yourself still totally old school in your mind? Like, I mean, have you fully, in, you know, wrapped your, you know, your your game around all the technological advances, or are you still kind of just doing it how you've always done it? Um, I'm still more or less old school doing it, you know, kind of how I've always done it. I now own a GPS. Don't really know how it works. I had it <laughs> two years ago, so I had a Nevada tag, and it was basically I had a chip in it so I could stay out of Idaho. Um, and it worked pretty good. I mean, I was surprised what you could do with it. Um, but still, you know, I'm kind of old school. You know me. I, you know, I've got a phone. You can call me. You can text me if you get my phone number. I don't have, you know, any of the social media stuff, nor do I want any of it. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of old school. You you talk about um, old school. Don't you think there are some things that, you know, just from calling, you know, I've seen the way you hunt and, and you hunt really hard and you hunt, you know, you, you, you get after it and you stay persistent and you keep a good attitude even when, you know, we blow elk out, we, we you know, get too aggressive and bump them. Um, but there's that hardcore tenacity. Would you say that that is one of the single biggest factors for you, you know, harvesting 51 elk with a bow? Never say die. Hunt till the last hour of the last day. Yeah. I, I just don't quit. It can be full moon. It can be hot. It can, you know, they're not bugling this, that, or the other thing. Oh, there went that one running off with my arrow in it. It's over. Yeah. What do you say to the guys like, um, you know, I think we've talked about on other podcasts, um, Danny Moore, who, you know, he doesn't even carry cow call, he just bugles. Um, do you think that the bugling, you know, being a good bugler, you're a great bugler, 
um, and obviously he's a great bugler, um, and there's others that are great buglers. Do you think that those tactics work in every state, or do you think there's areas where maybe being a better cow caller is 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 more beneficial than being a great bugler? Uh, no, I think you need to. If you if you a guy can bugle good, it's still really deadly. In fact, I you know in the last few years I've kind of seen that. I think make a full circle around again to where bugling's really good because people thought they couldn't call them with a bugle for a long time. It was entrenched in their brain, oh, you need to use your hoochie mama or whatever, and cow call, cow call, cow call. That's great, but, you know, I find that the bugle's starting to work again really good on this public land stuff, and I think we've kind of come full circle that people have forgot it. Do you, th- you think it's one of those things that um, I think one of the reasons sometimes bugling doesn't work as good is because there's a lot of people trying to bugle that don't really sound good. The, the good buglers that I've heard, it works good because they sound good. How much, how much effectiveness do you think is directly related to sounding like a bull elk? Well, a good chunk of it is sounding like a bull elk, but then... Think back on the other hand, how many terrible sounding bulls you've heard in the woods. I've heard a fair amount of them in my lifetime. I think more of it has to do with timing and cadence. Um, you know, the, good gu- point. the guys that buy the call and they, you know, go, you know, bulls don't sound like that. I mean, yeah. try and sound like a bull. Try not and blow it like a musical instrument. And I think you'll be a lot better off. Put a little passion, put a little aggression into it, you know. I think that. Don't you think, too, though, that, like, part of education, you know, some of the call manufacturers, you know, the guys read on the back of the package and, you know, make this sound and that sound. Don't you think, like, I mean, go on YouTube and type in bugling bull elk and, like, try and listen to as many bulls bugle as you can. Right. And make your bugle sound like that not like the not like the you know videos from 20 years ago when a guy's trying to get his bugle and show you how to do it like try and mimic you know play in your earphones you know have have a have a button that you push play and bulls are bugling in your earphones and you're you know and then you're bugling trying to mimic that bull i think that would people would get a lot better if they would you know, use that tactic. Absolutely. Listen to the bulls. And I, you know, I guess if you're going to pull stuff up on YouTube and try and learn to pull anything up that Corey Jacobson does. I mean, the guy's phenomenal. He sounds like a bull elk. I'd hunt him any day of the week. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's good. Try and mimic it. I mean, we can't all be like that. You know, he's won how many world titles. I mean, it just, that's a good place to, to learn people like that, that can really call well and never stop learning never stop trying try to get better all the time are there any calls specifically that you um have been using over the last couple years are you still using the same calls or what have you found that works for you um still using the same bugle at deep timber sounds it's made by a guy here in oregon that's it's tough to learn how to blow but if you can learn how to blow it it sounds really good um diaphragms i think what do I got? I just got some brand new ones from Corey Jacobson in the mail, some trial test things here yesterday. I haven't even got them out to try them, but I mean, I've used his dad's stuff quite a bit. Um, I've used some of Chapel stuff. Um, you know, I just kind of like a narrower mouthpiece and, 
you know, on a frame, on a diaphragm, because if it's too wide, I go to gagging on them. But, I mean, any of the stuff, you know, if it's got Rocky Jacobson's name or Corey Jacobson's name on it, they're good calls. Yeah, they definitely, they make good calls for sure. Uh, let me think. So, if you go down to Unit 10 with your buddy, you haven't been to Unit 10, but w what is your strategy that you envision going down when you get there as far as, um, you know, will you just treat it like any Arizona hunt you've been on and just dive in the middle of them and rip it up? Start turning them over. Meaning looking in... Trying to yeah, I mean that, that's a function. I know what he wants to shoot on this hunt. You know, it doesn't have to be the biggest bull in the state of Arizona, but it'll be a, a you know a nicer bull. And you just got to go. I mean, anytime you go on a hunt like that where you're targeting a bigger bull, I mean, you just need to start turning them over. Um, How hard do you think it is for someone, say, like your buddy or someone you know from? Uh, the Northwest that maybe doesn't see the quality that he might see in Arizona and a 330 comes running in, how hard is it, and you've been in that position, um, how hard is it to, you know, come to Arizona where it's really, really good and not shoot and be done on the first day? It's really, really tough when you come from a place that, you know, that, most of the bulls here kill their five points, small six points, things like that. You know, you just, a lot of guys are just happy to kill a bull in Oregon. And yet you, you draw a permit like that, and all of a sudden you're turning up, turning bulls down that they could be bigger than anything you ever killed in your life. And you're just, oh, it's kind of baffling at first. It can be frustrating even, you know, if you're trying to kill a bigger bull and, you know, turning down 320, 330, 340 bulls. And it's like, oh, wow, why couldn't I find this thing at home? But it's just a whole different mindset. So do you almost just try and enjoy each moment and just tell yourself, listen, if I shoot it, this whole hunt's over and I'm done. And so you just try and wait till something comes in. That's, you know, extra, extra special. And then say, okay, that one's worth shooting. Yeah. It, it's kind of that way. What I've seen in my limited experiences in Arizona, you know, go hunt the first 10 or 11 days of the season or hold out for a, a really nice bull. And usually there's enough bulls around that if you allow yourself three or four days at the very end of the season, you know, you can let your expectations for a bull slide if you just want to shoot a bull to take home. Or you can grind it out to the very end if you want to eat tag soup. But me, I prefer to eat elk than tag soup. So <laughs> I'm going to shoot one right at the end of the season. You know, right at the very end, my, my expectations and standards will drop. You've hunted some of Arizona's great units, and then you've hunted some of Arizona's mid-tier units. If you're talking to people that haven't hunted in Arizona, how do you explain some of those mid-tier units to them as far as action? I mean, is it still quite a bit better than some of the other action in some of those other states? Absolutely. It's good hunting. It's really good hunting. You know, I don't know why they call it mid-tier or whatever they want to call it. Because <laughs> you got the snobs best. like me. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> when you just hang out in Unit 9 all the time in places like that, yeah, you know, it, it's terrible. But, it, you know, I'll take some of their, you know, low-quality units over hunting my general Oregon tag every year. And is that... It, it, is it because their elk are more interactive and there's less people, 
or it's just easier to get around country you know you can you can move around you can hear elk yeah i mean compare the people is there more people up where you hunt or you know in a in a middle unit in arizona um there's way more people up here i think we have close to 40,000 archery elk hunters in the state of oregon turned loose for that whole month of season when it's open and down there you know the tags are limited yeah you've got the factor you know the buddy factor you got to take into account how many permits there are for a unit and even if there's only 100 you got to figure there's 200 250 people there anyways but you know some of the what they call mid-tier low-tier units down there all the bull has to do is walk across the two-lane highway and he just walked out of one of the best units in the state and he's in in one of the worst units in the state it happens all the time yeah for sure that's good stuff um I, I know we're talking about elk, but I know blacktail season is always in the back of your mind. Um, are you going to be able to put some time into blacktails this year? And if so, how is it looking up there um, for you? Um, I think it's going to be good. You know, of course, it'll just kind of come down to the weather we get during season, whether we get a bunch of snow. But I didn't have a very good season last year, so I'm looking for redemption this year. Um, and I'll actually have some time off to hunt, so that'll be a first but good you know i love to chase blacktail deer and you know i'm gonna give them a good week and a half two weeks this fall good what about your fishing um ha- has it been a good season fishing or, or where where are you at with that it was a pretty lackluster spring i mean we had some decent fishing um but it was the runs weren't real great this year we had great water conditions just um poor returns um, we've had, you know, the baby salmon on their out-migration have hit an ocean the last three years that the nutrients haven't been there and they've kind of starved off. Water's been warmer than normal in the ocean. Do you think that's just a cycle? Or yeah, it, it, it's, it's a total cycle deal. It, you know, we'll see it good again. Um, my guess is in about four years. Gotcha. Did you know Dar and I are going to Alaska here I guess we leave Friday for a mountain goat. No, I didn't. Who are you going with? Yeah, Frank. <laughs> you guys are in for an Frank Sanders. You're in for an adventure. <laughs> oh yeah, we're uh, we're we're yeah we're we've been training all summer and Dar's taking his bow. I'm taking a rifle and um, we're going with Frank Sanders and um, we drew the tags. You know, back when it was time to put in, for, you know, we we hadn't applied for Alaska and Frank's like. Yeah, I think it's only like a eight or ten percent chance to draw, and and um, so we put in and we both drew, <laughs> and the first year, awesome. <laughs> and, which is cool, and uh, we're going with uh, a guide of Frank's, and we're we're flying in a float plane and then backpack hunt, and um, yeah, it should be fun. Have you hunted? I guns? have not. It's something I'd like to do at some point, but I have not done it. Yeah, we're uh, we're kind of excited, so we've been training and packing gear and buying food and trying to figure everything out, and uh, it should be a good time. You know, the the for probably the last week, the forecast there in Alaska, kind of in the area where we're hunting, it the the best days are 50% chance of showers, and I've been watching, you know, 70, 80, 90% chance of rain, and now we're getting closer where 
the first two days of the hunt look like they're only 30% chance of rain, so it, it seems like a dry spell, which is which is awesome. <laughs> That'll be good. Everyone I've talked to said it's just wetter and wet, but uh, two, you're going to take two desert rats up there. We'll probably drown <laughs> up there. Yeah, you guys are going to, well, I don't know if you're going to drown. Maybe you're just going to swell up like a sponge. You get that water on you, dry guys. Yeah, we, we won't even know. I mean, you know, you know how we are. If it gets below 60 in Arizona, I'm in a full parka. Um, but uh, should should be a fun hunt. I know Dar's really excited to go, and he's taking his bow, and I'm going to I'm gonna bat clean up with the rifle, and uh, so it should be That'll fun. be a good time. be a real good time. Yeah, and then Dar's got an elk tag himself. I don't know. If I did not. That. He's got an elk tag in a unit where you shot a giant. Oh, no. <laughs> oh no i have a feeling i know where he's going hunting <laughs> yeah he's uh he's uh he's excited for that and and um i think he's gonna do well so it, it should be a should be a good no year. kidding no kidding that'll be awesome yeah. yeah so well it's been awesome talking to you um always love hearing you know a guy with a lot of experience like yourself and um you got any last final words to guys that are, you know, getting ready for their own elk hunts and, and, you know, someone that shot 51 with a bow, any, any final thoughts or, or advice? Uh, don't give up. Just keep grinding it out. Good things happen to those that stay in the field and grind it out. That's, I think that's, um, well said and good advice. Um, it's been great having you on, buddy. I wish you the best. Look forward to seeing a picture of number 52. I'm fortunate usually to get a text pretty shortly after you kill an elk, and um, I'm, I'm grateful for that and grateful for your friendship. And look forward to the next time we can get out there and, and uh, hunt around. And, uh, yeah, fun stuff. I'm glad you're doing good with work, and uh, look forward to uh, – Get, getting out in the field again with you one of these yeah, days. Yeah, we're going to have to shoot a whitetail with a, a coos whitetail with a bow is what we got to do. <laughs> that's that's yep. next on the bucket yep. list. Yep, and maybe throw some tortillas at each other. <laughs> That'd be even better. <laughs> Viva Mexico. <laughs> right on, buddy. Sounds good. Well, God bless. I'll catch good you later. Good talk to you, Jay.